So we're in this series now on uh, storytellers. As teachers, we've been given an opportunity to, to share with you some stories that have impacted our lives and that we wanted to pass on to you. And I, I'm excited about that. I know we were all excited about that. I, and I've been thinking about that, the whole thing about stories. And I believe that there's actually two kinds of stories. There are parent stories and then there are grandparent stories. Parent stories tend to be kind of all put together real nice and neatly, kind of fairly pious, fairly proper. Grandparent stories tend to be funny, uh, unpretentious, embarrassingly candid at times. Uh, I came across a, a story here recently that is an example of this. Um, it's something that happened a little while back. There was a teenage boy who came home at midnight and, and he sheepishly and apologetically reported to his parents that he had had an accident with a family car, a fender bender. Now, I don't know, dads, how you typically would respond in situations like that. I know unless I was able to prepare myself a little bit, you know, and think about this, like Dave Bartlett always tells us about, put yourself in situations, imagine how you were going to respond. If I hadn't have done that, I might have been, like this dad, angry and disappointed. And and so that's how this dad responded. And he reminded his son for about the 10th time how when he, the father, was a teenager, how, how he was such a responsible driver. You know, he was so cautious and he was always very careful. So how do you imagine the boy went to bed that night? You know, he, he went to bed feeling depressed and very guilty and sad. Now, a couple of days later, the young man's grandfather happened to stop by. And when the old man heard about the fender bender, what did he do? He laughed. And then he said, you know, you're just like your father. And then he puts a, a big compassionate arm around the young boy's shoulder and he said, did I ever tell you about the time when, when your dad took the tires off a 29 Ford and then he rode on bare metal rims down the Burlington Norway, North, Northern Railroad tracks, ruined all four rims. And then he burned out the transmission racing in, in reverse when he saw the train come up over the horizon and start barreling down towards him. And then the boy's eyes lit up and he looked at his grandpa and he said, Really? And then out comes the whole embarrassing story, plus two or three other similar ones. You know, what, what do they say about, about grandparents and grandchildren? That the reason that they get along so well is because they have a common enemy? So, parent stories. Parent stories tend to be pretty put together, pretty pious, pre-holy. Grandparent stories tend to be humorous and unpretentious and, and ruthlessly honest. So the story that we're going to look at this morning in the book of Genesis, the story of Jacob's marriages to Leah and Rachel. Well, this is a, this is a grandparent's story. And, I, and I'll explain that in a minute. But first, I want to just remind you of who Jacob was. Jacob was the son of, does anybody remember, son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you remember back to when we did the Old Testament series, we refer to these three as, as the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. It was Abraham that God called out of a distant land to come to the promised land. 
And that's where God made this incredible promise to Abraham and said, your name will be great and, and your family will be great. Out of your family, I will create a nation that will never be forgotten. And that was kind of a problem for Abraham because he was, at that point, childless, he and Sarah. And then in his old age, God blessed him with a son, one son. And that son was, was named Isaac. Now, God made the same promises to Isaac. And then they had two boys, twins, and their names were Esau and Jacob. And Esau was born first, but Jacob came right on, literally on the heels of his big brother, his older brother. He was, it says he was grasping at his, at his heel. And that's really what Jacob's life was, was racing to try to get a hold of Esau until there came this, this moment with his mother's help, actually, when he deceived his father into thinking that he was actually his older brother. So he received from his father the blessing that should have been given to Esau. And then he tricked his brother out of his birthright as the firstborn. And then knowing what he had done, that he had lied, that he had cheated, that he had deceived his family, and with the advice of his mother, he ran and literally ran for the hills, ran for his life because he knew that his, his brother and his father would not be happy with him. Now that, that happens just before what we're going to look at. And in between there is, is another story. It's a story, a famous story that many people are familiar with, the story of Jacob's Ladder. That's, now that's a parent's story. That's a very kind of a proper pious holy story. Jacob has this, this dream as he's sleeping by himself in the desert. He has this dream of this ladder that goes up to heaven, kind of this escalator that, that angels are riding up and down, up to heaven and down to earth. And, and at the very top, there's God who promises to Jacob. He says to Jacob, he makes to, makes to him the same promise that he made to Isaac and he made to Abraham, to his father and to his grandfather. And he, he made this promise that he would be the father of a great nation. Now that's a, that's a parent's story. A very proper, very pious, very holy story. But then the one that comes next, the story of Leah and Rachel, that's a, that's a grandparent's story. It's like a grandfather putting his arm around your shoulder and he says, did I ever tell you about the time that Jacob got tricked into marrying the wrong woman and then he had to get married all over again? And your eyes light up and you say, Really? Now, in this dream, this, this Jacob's ladder dream, God promised Jacob that he'd be the father of a nation, but, but how in the world was that supposed to happen? To become a father, Jacob first needed a wife. He needed to get married. And the odds didn't look too good for him at that moment. And he doesn't have a wife. He's, he's out all by himself, all alone in a strange place with no financial resources, running from his brother, running from his, his father, both of whom he's cheated and lied to, odds don't look so good. He's probably not going to find a wife very soon. You know, in those days, actually the, the men, oftentimes with the help of the parents, uh, they actually purchased their wives. And I know that sounds kind of crude and disrespectful by our standards, and, and it is. Uh, but that was the custom of, of Jacob's day. And 
Jacob didn't have any financial resources. He didn't have a dowry. He didn't have, a, he didn't have any bride money. He wasn't able to purchase a wife so that he could become a father, so he could have sons someday. So how's this going to happen? Where in the world is he going to find a wife? Well, Jacob comes to the land of, of Haran. And, and who does he run into but his uncle Laban? He's got some relatives in this, this area. This is where Abraham lived for a while as he made his way to the promised land. And, and Jacob's mother, Rebecca, who was Isaac's wife, who was Abraham's daughter-in-law, this Laban, that's actually her brother. So this is Uncle Laban. Now, I've got the story printed in your bulletin. So if you want to read the whole thing, and I'm going to start at the beginning with a couple of verses and read those, and then I'll, I'll point to a couple, three others as we go along. Uh, but I want to start here at the beginning, or Genesis 29, verse 16. Now Laban, Uncle Laban, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, younger daughter Rachel. So Jacob, he takes, he takes one look at Rachel, and he says, that's, that's the girl for me. I want to marry her. I want her to be my wife. I want her to be the mother of my children. So he works out this deal with Laban. Jacob says, I'll work for seven years for you. He would be not, not so much a hired hand, but more like an indentured servant. And, and that's how he's going to pay for his bride. Now, I wonder how many husbands today Besides the husbands in this room, of course. But how many husbands today would work without pay for seven years just for the privilege of marrying their wives? Let's see a show of... No, I won't. I won't. I won't do that. (laughs) But, you know, that's what Jacob did. He does that. Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, the Bible says. But, and it's such a great line, such a romantic line. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his great love for her. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that sweet? Okay, so let's fast forward. Seven years is up. Jacob's indentured servanthood is over. And he says to his uncle Laban, Okay, that's it. Time's up. I fulfilled my part of the deal. I want to marry your daughter. So Laban turns over to Jacob a veiled young woman. But the next morning, in the morning's light, Jacob realizes that he has just spent the dark night not with Rachel, whose name means lamb, but with her older sister Leah, whose name means cow. And I'm not making that up. Those are actually what their Hebrew names mean. The Bible doesn't actually say that Leah is unattractive. It only says that she has weak or delicate eyes. And honestly, I have no idea what that means. But it sounds suspiciously similar to that 
line often used to describe a blind date. You know, she's a good bowler. Or he's got a great sense of humor. So here you have Jacob trembling with rage. And he barges into his uncle's tent and he says, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And that's kind of interesting coming from him. You remember he was the one who deceived his own father, who cheated his own brother. And now he himself is being deceived and cheated. I guess what goes around comes around. You said you'd give me Rachel. Says Jacob. And then what does Laban say? He says, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also. In return for another seven years of work. I'm just wondering how many of you would uh, buy a used car from Laban. So finally, the, the two men work out a deal, kind of a marry now, pay later plan. You know, a wedding festival in those days um, lasted about a week. And Laban agrees that at the end of that week, Jacob can have Rachel to be his wife on the promise that he'll work for Laban another seven years, which he does. And so at the end of that week, Jacob got married a second time. And the Bible says... And these are the last words in this story. That he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Now up to this point we've been thinking about the story. Looking at it through through Jacob's eyes. I want you to try to imagine. How Leah felt about all of this. Leah with with the weak eyes. Who knows that she's not as pretty as her sister. And as her husband disappears into his tent at night with her younger sister, she knows, too, that that he loves Rachel more. Leah knows that she was Jacob's second choice. Have you ever been second choice? Are you the girl that got dumped for the other girl? Or the guy who got dumped for the other guy? you the... The basketball player that got benched in favor of someone else? Are you the farmer whose neighbor got two inches of rain while your crops only saw a tenth? Are you the employee who always gets passed up for the promotion? Are you the runner-up, the second fiddle, the bridesmaid? Are you the one that only gets as far as the silver medal stand or maybe the bronze or maybe you didn't even make it through the preliminaries? Can you identify with Leah? Um, a minister friend of mine had a had an interesting and uh, and painful experience. There was this job that he really wanted. He he, he wanted it so much, uh, just seemed so right, so perfect, and so he applied for it. And he had an interview, and then he had a second interview. At which time he was told that he he was one of two final candidates. They had narrowed the field down to the last two, and he was one. And he was so hopeful. He really believed that this is what God had designed his life for. But they offered the job to the other guy. 
Actually, this, this guy was me. And they chose my best friend instead. And at the time, at the time, I was just so devastated. I did believe this is what God wanted me to do. I couldn't imagine at the time a greater disappointment. But actually, I was wrong. A few years later, there was another job opportunity, another really good one that I was really excited about. Another series of interviews. Once again, I was one of two final candidates. And again, I came in second place. But this time, the other guy turned the job down. After all that time and effort that he had invested, now he decides that he doesn't want the job. So they came to me and they said, okay, the job is yours. So you know what I did? I said, no. I really wanted that job. But I didn't want to be second choice. I wanted them to want me as much as I wanted them. And I know that maybe was a bit immature on my part. It happened a long time ago. And, and I feel like things have worked out pretty good. I'm happy doing what I'm doing, where I'm doing it, and who I'm doing it with. But at the time, that's how I felt. I didn't like feeling like second choice. Can you relate? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been second choice? It hurts. When the silver medalist on the Olympic medal platform starts to cry, most oftentimes those aren't tears of joy. When you want to be first and you come in second or third or don't even make it through the prelims, that hurts. So Leah, she's kind of the patron saint of everybody who's ever come out on the short end of the stick. She's a patron saint for all of those who have been second choice. Leah, the loser. Your wedding's supposed to be the most, you know, the happiest day of your life. But by the week's end, Jacob was in the arms of Rachel, the lamb. And Leah was physically and emotionally abandoned. How hurt and disappointed she must have felt. Can't you hear her saying, why can't I be beautiful? Why can't I have a beautiful life like Rachel's life where things just seem to fall into place? Why doesn't that happen for me? Why do I always have to be second choice? But God acts in the lives of losers as well as winners. To be second choice doesn't disqualify you. You still are one of God's deeply loved children. Now, this is what happens later on in the story. When Rachel died in childbirth, it was Leah who continued to give Jacob the sons that God had promised him. Those sons would then go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel, Simeon, Judah, Reuben, Levi, Zebulun, and on. Those are all Leah's boys. The nation of Israel, as we know it, emerged from the lineage of Leah. And as a matter of fact, there emerged from one of Leah's offspring, from the tribe of Judah, one very special child who would play a very important part in God's plan. This child would be born in a manger, in Bethlehem, on a winter's night long ago, 
and they would call him Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt to be second place. But just because you are second choice does not mean that God stops loving you or stops working through you. God needs second choice people just as much as first. There's a friend of mine who married a little later on in his life and they wanted to have a baby to be parents, to raise a family together. They tried for years, he and his wife, but, but it just, whatever reason, it just didn't happen. And then they tried to adopt a child, but they were told that they were too old. And just about the time that they had reached that lowest point, the wife became pregnant. We all thought, it's a miracle. And they had a baby girl. And she wasn't Rachel. She wasn't all pretty and perfect. She was deformed. Where her legs should have been, there were two little stumps. So the nurses, they wrapped that baby up so that the mother at that initial moment would see only her beautiful face. And when that long-awaited miracle child was handed to the mother, she pulled back the blanket and and saw the emptiness where her daughter's legs should have been. And for a moment, the mother fought back tears. And then she said, and we'll never forget this, she said this with such conviction. She said, God knew how much we needed her. And He must have known how much she needed us. Words that were spoken out of pain and disappointment, but also spoken with a humble trust and hope in God's presence and power. The Apostle Paul, I believe, was a man who began his life in first place. He was a, he was a winner, a mover, and a shaker. But all that changed when Jesus introduced himself to Paul and, and literally knocked him off his high horse. Paul fell from that, that gold medal position in life and from that moment on walked a very hard road. But he did so with this deep trust and conviction and hope in the presence of Jesus in his life and the promise of God's power. And out of that belief, this is what he wrote to the letter of, that he sent to the Romans. He said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 19 and 20, Jesus teaches his followers about, about what God values. And it's different from what the world values. The world honors power and strength and control, and that's how so many of the winners in the world get to first place. But Jesus says that God honors humility and servanthood and love. One of Jesus' friends said to him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? He, he wants some kind of assurance that, that this way of life, that choosing second place, is going to mean something. And Jesus assures him and he says, But many who are first will be last. But many who are last in the end will be first. In the end, first place by the world's standards may not amount to much. 
all those medals, all those trophies, all those accomplishments are going to turn to dust. Winning isn't everything. God's plan is fulfilled through beautiful people like Rachel, who have beautiful lives, whose things just seem to just fall into place perfectly. But God also works through the, the Leahs of our world, the ones who finish second, the ones whose lives are not perfect. So we are gathered here this morning. We are winners and we are losers. We're first choice and we're second choice. And third choice. And fourth choice. We are all blessed by our Creator with varying degrees of beauty and grace and physical ability and charm. But one thing we all have in common and that is that we are all deeply loved by the Father. He has a plan. First choice or second. Winner or loser. Rachel or Leah. And that plan cannot work without you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have provided for all of us. That you have You have a plan for all of us. And it's not about what we can or can't do. Who we are or who we aren't. This plan is about, it's about you. It's about your kingdom. It's about what you have made possible through your son. It's about your grace, your mercy, your power. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for not trusting you. For doubting your plan and and your power. God, in, in your mercy and through your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Fill us with, with your promise. Same kind of promises that you made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And to Leah. Give us hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.